0: Hello and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the
1: nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello everyone, welcome to an off-season episode of Tennis with an Accent, this is your host Saqib Ali. Today I'm joined by a special talent which has made uh, quite a leap in the WTA ranks. You probably already know her, but I'm gonna replug in here. My guest is Gabriella Knudsen, a former Syracuse alumni and now making waves on the WTA and is heading to Melbourne, uh, hoping to qualify for her first major. Gabriella, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. This is my second podcast and first one in English, actually.
1: <laughs> okay, so I I have some honor. So hopefully when you start breaking, you know, some major grounds we'll host you again next time when you have you are in, in the top 100 easily and all those good things. <laughs> but uh, let's start with the preseason. You are in Bangkok. So tell yes, us listeners, I'm how's in, the preseason going?
0: I'm in Bangkok, Thailand, a bit of a low-key spot. Most people don't really come here for preseason training, but I have some contacts, some friends that I'm here with, and I'm just really trying to get used to the heat. Um I cut my preseason a little bit shorter than I would wanted because I felt like I wanted to play two WTAs in December, which I got really tough draws, so may have not been the best decision. But, you know, I got two really good matches against Alize Cornet and Arantxa Rus, which were amazing experiences, especially going into next year when I want to play more and more WTAs. But yeah, preseason, it's it's a lot of running. It's a lot of time on court in the heat. Today, we tried to practice from 12 to 3 in the middle of the you know boiling heat. And I'm always the one on the opposite side, standing against the sun, just trying to get used to it. But I don't think there's much more I can do to get used to it. It's going to be a shock. I'm traveling to Brisbane on Tuesday and it's, they're a smack gap in the middle of summer. So I'm a bit worried, not going to lie, but everyone's conditions are the same. It's absolutely.
1: all
0: going to level out on the playing field eventually.
1: So how Hopefully. short, <laughs> no, no, absolutely. You'll be fine. Uh, so how short was the uh, off season since you're already been working for a few weeks? You played 77 matches. I checked. That's kind of, it's a rhythm of its own. So what was recovery like and how, how short was the break?
0: yeah it was it was a long, long year. and even even though I actually got injured twice just for like a month. so I had two months off technically. but still it, since I'm so new to this and this was my first full year playing, it felt like yeah. a lot. It really did. I wanna well, I was in the finals of a 60k in November at the end of November. beginning of November. And I took three weeks off to train. So I did like a mini preseason. Then I did two weeks of the WTAs. And now I'm doing like two weeks of another preseason. So I kind of split it up a little bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you made like these um, immense strides, like 307, I think, ranking spots. That's just crazy. Anyone who follows tennis knows how hard it is at any level. And you being this is like your what is sophomore year, right? Second year, that's how you say it? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. what did you find about yourself and the tour? I mean, the travel is immense, it's international compared to collegiate tennis. We'll get into that, but uh, what were the learnings, I mean, for a long season that spans over continents?
0: I I learned so much. I Let me just say I'm so happy with how everything turned out. I'm so grateful for how um tennis has been going, but it's really hard out here. It's definitely a lot harder than I expected when I first started. I think as you go higher and higher, obviously the prize money gets better and you are more confident, but also the pressure gets more intense because you feel like now you have a certain standard to maintain. When I was first starting out, going to my first two tournaments, la, 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 let's just see how it goes. But now it's, okay, I know how it goes, and now I need to get the work done. (laughs) And So it's definitely a lot harder than I expected. I knew it would always be tough, that's why I think – I didn't go pro for seven years because I knew it would be expensive. I knew it would be a lot of time by yourself. I knew it would be loads and loads of traveling, very lonely. But I don't think I really, really understood the extent of it. Um, And that's kind of, yeah, exciting. It's a challenge, and I'm excited to continue it, I think. But that's why I kept putting it off for so long, even though I knew maybe I should have gone pro a lot sooner. Um, but I did put it off because of this fear of it being so hard.
1: So yeah, I wanna stay in that phase, like you said seven years and you know, and for listeners, you have you went to Syracuse and you also have a masters in digital, you know, what is it, yeah. digital media? Yeah, so yeah. You, yeah. You you probably have landed a tennis channel or some job already, you know, which we we don't know. So you you you'll be you'll be a natural. But what's the thought process? Why the delay? Because we hear a lot of players, I've talked to Rajiv Ram, who's like a doubles legend. He was a big advocate that college life really helps you prepare for the tour, unlike the Agassiz and the Becker or Salis and Graf, who broke the tour in seventeen sixteen So what was this delay like, and who were you consulting? What was the thought process because we see more and more players doing this now, offsetting the the teen years and go in your early twenties uh, of course, early twenties are more ready for life, but uh, what was the thought process? Who were you consulting, and why this decision uh,
0: so my decision at 17, 18 to go to college instead of pro was quite easy because I had gotten a bit injured. I also wasn't good enough to find sponsors and my family didn't really come from money. So we weren't able to just give the financial backing that someone needs at 18 to go full pro. Because also at 18, you can't really travel by yourself. You need a whole team, at least one or two people <laughs> who there with you or a parent. Um, and that just wasn't the case. I wasn't as high ranked as I could to get sponsors. So it was a really obvious and easy decision to go to Syracuse University. Um, I chose, I like, um, I wasn't really sure about which university. So I like toyed around with that decision, but going to college was very, very straightforward. And I loved it for four years. I enjoyed it so, so much. I even prioritized school over tennis a lot of the time. In the summers, I had internships. I wasn't really playing a crazy amount in the summers, but during the season, we would always play a lot. For example, I think one year I played like 30 matches within about four months. So the season gets quite intense. I think that's why I was quite tired throughout the summers and didn't really want to play pro matches. And then as I got to my senior year, I was fourth in the nation in the US, but I just felt like I was a bit burnt out after all of the intense tennis in college. I just didn't really feel like going pro just yet. Also, I didn't really have any money. And I just, I didn't know if I was really, really good enough or just not ready for it. So I found a really good scholarship opportunity in England and at Durham University. So where I went then for three years and I got two masters, one in digital marketing and the second one in renewable energy. So I stayed at Durham for three years. And then finally in that last year, I also had a full-time job. So I gained a bit of capital, which was kind of that stepping stone into okay, you have, you know, five thousand dollars that you can now just fully give into tennis. Because to go pro, you need at least five to ten thousand dollars. you need to be willing to give it away. Just luckily I did well and I got that money back, but I had to have that financial capital to initially even start the tour. So that last year was the stepping stone that kind of made me able and financially able to actually yeah. go on tour.
1: No, that's quite good because I didn't know how to ask that question, but you already answered that. So you need like some sort of a capital to get started, just like anything else, because you're like,
0: yeah.
1: it's like contractors, you're, in, you're yeah. investing, you know, like people even yeah. in non sport jobs. It's a you have, mm-hmm. Yeah, you go to yeah. interviews, you take flights. You, you need to have some sort of a credit card. So, you know, you grab a meal. So, and then the, the sponsorship and coaching and the infrastructure that's needed. So uh, how big is your team currently? And, you know, what is the arrangement like? Because I talked to Mert you know, who also knows both of us and that's why we're doing this podcast. And uh, he's explained to me, you know, how some of these things work. And he's uh, working in Turkey with, you know, a few players lost since the pandemic. So what was the arrangement for you and, you know, how big is the team right now? And uh, do you have a sponsor
0: I go along? So I started out training at the University of Nottingham. So I went to Durham University, but our rival team was University of Nottingham, where they were very, very helpful and offered me full training and a great place to really start because I wouldn't have been able to start and pay for a coach and an academy and a full-time training schedule. So they were very, very helpful over the past year when I started in September of giving me that base and the opportunity to start. And then from there on, I now have a coach who is based in Italy. I have an advisor, someone that helps me out with matches and a strategist. So he kind of does that. And I have a coach. But I do not have anyone traveling with me because that's very, very expensive. Also, to find someone that you like enough to have them with you 24-7 is really hard. So you have to like them as a person. You have to trust them as a coach. And there can't be any, you know, male-female relations. and So it's very complicated. And then also you have to afford them. And you have to afford their salary and the housing and the apartments, which... I now I'm in a good position, but it's still not like I can afford a five-star hotel at every single tournament. I can afford a decent hotel that pays for my expenses. And no, I can afford a decent hotel for myself. Mm. So no team. I will take my brother who's 20 years old. So I have reserved him for the entire summer when, when he gets back from university. So he'll come with me. But other than that, yeah, that's pretty much it. I occasionally have advisors helping me at tournaments. Like I have a ex-coach at University of Nottingham that's coming to Australian Open with me. So it's kind of bits and bobs here and there. I think at my ranking, most of us are just piecing it together as we go. Mm. No one really at my level, unless they have a huge financial backing, has a team that goes everywhere with them and a full-on training coach and academy and... You know, because
1: it's expensive. <laughs> it's really expensive. I mean, that—that's that, that, the point which you just said. I've done many of these interviews. It just—we uh, always appreciate what players are going through, but we somehow subconsciously underscore this, the logistics behind it, the mindset. Right. One thing is not able to afford someone, but it's not a level playing field. Then you could be running into. Uh, fellow american who's probably part of the usda and has like a support system in place so it's not even like you know it is even you know first one to five matches wins the event but how you get there and what's going on behind behind the scenes is so intriguing so how about yeah. fitness because i met mert last year and mert had a fitness trainer for uh for his player so what do you do for fitness and recovery what kind of advice is there and who do you rely on
0: I rely on a few people. I have one fitness coach that I am in Germany this summer who is amazing, who I know I can turn to for a plan if I need to. I have one at the academy where my coach is in Italy. Um, I have one that I still talk to from University of Nottingham. So I have really, really supportive and nice people that believe in me. Um, but I don't have someone with me full time. For example, now in Thailand, I'm training here with a boy. He's 800. So I joined their fitness program. So I'm with his fitness coach. So it's just piecing it together, really. And I just want to touch on what you said. Yeah, just other people have a supporting staff and it's not an even playing field. I felt that my last tournament two weeks ago was against Roos. She's, I think, 50th in the world. And I was at this WTA playing the first round and she had two or three people there with her. And I had no one at that point. And he, whenever she served, she looked to her coach and he told her exactly where to serve. And it was working. I was struggling on the returns so bad. And I just was there by myself feeling quite lonely. And, you know, between the sets, she went to go talk to her coach because coaching is allowed and I was there with no, no weapons, no, kind, no one really supporting me, telling me, okay, giving me an outside perspective into what's going on in the match. I was just fumbling along. And I made some mistakes in that match for sure. But I do think if there was a coach on that side, he may have highlighted those mistakes a bit quicker to me than instead of me, you know, after the match, ruminating on them.
1: That's kind of interesting. So let me ask you, I mean, you're a player, you, more, you know more about tennis than someone like me ever will. So you think uh, while you observe what the other person's coach was doing, is that something like a no no or that's something you can't help because you should still be focusing on what you're doing? Was that a distraction? I know you can't help it because the other person has helped. Yeah. So is that something you try not to do or is that a norm that players do? Because we wouldn't we would not know this. We just watch tennis. We don't we have never played at that I level. Think,
0: I definitely do think I shouldn't have let it get to me as much. It's okay to notice it and then move on. But I think just because it was my second week by myself, the week before I played Cornet, a French girl in France. So already I was kind of in a bit of a sad and lonely and feeling sorry for myself kind of a vibe. And then that happened. So I noticed it more than I would have if I had my own coach there and I was focused on what he was telling me, I wouldn't even worry about what she was saying. Or maybe if I had been in a bit more positive focused mindset then I wouldn't have been worrying, but I just, I was losing. I was feeling lonely and pitying myself. Oh, I don't have anyone. And so then I focused on it a lot more, which I definitely shouldn't have, but it's yeah. If if you're on return, he's two meters away from you doing some weird Mm. uh, yeah sign language to her. It's tough not to notice. And also when she stops and looks at him every time,
1: is coaching allowed at that level? I know it's been, okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now that at the ITF level, there's also some coaching trials. They're debating now whether they should allow coaching or not. I'm a bit against it because I do think the richer players with the financial backing will have coaches and then it's not fair.
1: Yeah. I'm from the old school section. Me and Mert have talked about this and I even asked someone, I think back in the day when this was at least being in talks, I won't name the player and, when I gave back Mert's response because I was at a tournament and this person said coaching should be allowed, I said, what happened to the players who don't have a coach? And he was stumped. He was a top player. He said, oh, I didn't think how of that.
0: How could he not think, of, he yeah, not think but, about but, that?
1: But that, that's the bubble we live in, right? You know, like my problems, yes. that's yeah. my world, right? And then yeah. he was quite receptive. He said, oh, no, I never thought of it. Then he tried to come up with a response saying that uh, the tournament should appoint someone. But a tournament-appointed coach would will, will not know you. But you you also, won't trust I them. Don't,
0: yeah. <laughs> I don't trust them. I would exactly. never, even if they offered me the best coach in the world, I would not listen to them because there are so there's so much money and points on the line to just trust someone that you met five minutes ago. There's no way. There's exactly. Absolute, that, 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 that's
1: the point. And sometimes you know, just we're trying to make the sport more accessible for TV. But there's already, I think, my thing is tennis is already good. Try to tap other avenues. Coaching is not... I, I don't know anyone who wants to say, hey, what what is Goran saying to Novak or right, what's Anacon saying to Fritz? We don't want to... I mean, it's good to know in an interview, but when we're watching for a match, we want to watch the contest as fans. So I don't know why they're trying to yeah. do these new things.
0: I also uh, don't think the opponents should know what the what the coach is saying i have i go into some interviews and they ask me oh what are you working on right now so are you injured what what are your injuries how are you feeling and they ask all these questions and i'm like i'm not telling yeah. you this not that i think my opponent's going to stalk my interviews but you don't know coaches do thorough research and if i say in an inter- interview yeah i've been working on my backhand it's it's gotten a lot worse recently they're going to read that someone's going to read that news against me and that's not
1: so yeah, I wouldn't that's, want that,
0: knowing that's,
1: what my yeah, coach is saying. No, you're you're astute right there, but that's part of the observation. I think there's always this notion between fans and even some part of media that whatever's said in the press conference, once you get, you know, I'm sure you're getting experience every minute, you don't reveal all your cards because you know that's it's, it's a trade secret. Like asking asking a chef's recipe on how they make something on YouTube, they won't give you the ingredient. What's there'll always be secret sauce that's missing. So no, let's let's stay in this moment because uh, it's quite intimidating one person going against a team, but I think that will make players stronger. I think uh, yes. if you end up, I'm sure you've beaten some of these players who have help. So I think that in the end is a big win that one person beat a team. Yeah. Uh, but I interviewed the great Ivan Lendl, you know, who, which was one of my dreams to interview a few months ago. And I didn't know that I think early 80s when he was without a coach, he would take notes after every match and this is before the computer and the internet era, he would write down the tendencies and the patterns of the match. And he said there was an incident. If you have time, listen to the podcast. I don't know how much how big a Lendl fan you are, but he gave this insight that he marked, uh, he saw the spots in the court and the hard court where this person was serving after seven or eight misses. Then he just adjusted his stance and he started shifting a little bit and then he never lost to that person. So... Again and today, there's data. I'm sure. Do do you watch your matches? Do you have access? Uh, yeah. How do you? How do you... I,
0: I try to rewatch my matches. I also I have a little notebook and I take so many notes. Actually, right now I was almost late to this podcast because I was doing homework that my coach appointed. That because um, I took a lot of notes when I was at the academy, and he wanted me to transcribe them in my own words onto a Google document, and that he could then edit. So that's what I've been doing for the past hour and a half here. In Thailand, thousands of miles away from my coach, but transcribing how to hit the best backhand onto wow. a Google document.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's what a coach does, but you're multitasking some more power to use and you already have a digital media background to fall on, but you can also be yeah. a coach, looks like, one day. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, usually when we start this podcast, I do a standard template, but uh, you know, I'm interested in a player's biography because anyone who's tuning in, and your biography is as interesting as anyone in tennis. you lived in two countries, so you moved from U.S. to Czech Republic, then you started your tennis education pretty much happened there, then you came back for college. So talk mm-hmm. about that phase, what transpired, who were your influences, why did that move happen, and was it because of tennis or tennis became a thing once you moved there? I know you've been playing at a young age, but... Talk us through those times.
0: Right. Well, I am born to an American father and a Czech mother. I was born in America, but then we lived half and half up until I was about 12. And then when I was 12, um, due to some family reasons, we moved fully to Czech Republic. And there I went to an academy in Prostyov where Mukova, Krejcikova, Burdik, Kvitova, they were all there. And so I was with them at the academy from 12 to 18. And that's kind of really where I think I put in the hours and hours and hours on court and really kind of had the basis for my game. But then I think I kept that level throughout the seven years of college. I don't, I do think I evolved mentally as a player. I don't think I improved like my technique or anything or my game. I just kind of maintained that level that I learned in Czech Republic and then evolved mentally to be a lot stronger after those seven years to be fully ready to be on tour.
1: And then college happened, you came to US, that was always planned. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I remember when I was, I think 12 was before we fully moved to Czech Republic and we visited a bunch of the colleges in California. And I was like, wow, I need to go here because at that point I was doing online high school in U.S. I was doing online high school and or online schooling. And I was like, wow, it must be so nice to go to classes and have friends and play tennis after school. <laughs> and so I just, I fell in love with college and I think that was kind of if maybe it would have changed if I was a top 100 top 50 junior and found some sponsors maybe I would have given up that dream but I also always have been very academically oriented like even now on tour I do a lot of reading I have a part-time social media job I feel the nerdy part of me definitely can't really rest so Yeah, college was a wonderful way to combine both. And I'm so, so grateful. And I wouldn't change it for anything. I really wouldn't. I loved every year of those that time.
1: So did you maintain a dual citizenship? How did that work? Or were you Mm -hmm. always with the American passport?
0: Yeah, I have American and Czech passport. And um, yeah, I can play for both flags if I wanted to. Currently, I play for Czech Republic.
1: Nice. So this is a fascinating part. America and certain countries allow you to have this dual uh, passport, but also do, you know, you've lived in two countries, which is probably an essential to be a traveling tennis player, because the more exposed you are to different cultures, I think the better you, you know, the quickly you adapt. I mean, I'm not even a player. And I came to us when I was 19 from India and I've Mm. lived here all my life since. And I've become a citizen. I still think with my accent, with my upbringing, I think I'm half and half. I'm, Maybe my foundation is Indian, but I've learned a lot of new things here. And no one ever sees me and calls me an American, but that's, you know, the melting pot America is. And, you know, so let me ask you this. Uh, with, with living in two countries, this is more interesting to me right now. Uh, what do you learn about yourself and uh, how different it is to be a mesh of two cultures? Are you heavily, uh, I don't know if this gets asked, but are you, are you more of an American? Are you more of a Czech because your foundational years, you were here, but then you moved there.
0: Yeah, and this is a really interesting question. No one in an interview has actually asked me this question. It's more just people that have met me, you know, um, on the street and stuff. But yeah, I find it really fascinating. And I, I think it makes life really, really interesting for me, but also a lot harder because I feel like I don't fully fit into one place. I'm not fully check, check. And I don't fully fit in with all the Czech tennis players. I'm not American because I haven't lived there in a while, even though I grew up there when I was younger and I feel maybe a bit more American than I do Czech, but all of my family is in Czech Republic. So it's really, it's quite complicated, but I do think the blessing is that I can fit into so many different cultures. For example, I'm now in Bangkok and I'm here with my friend who's half Japanese, half Thai. And I, I, fit in very well because I think I'm very malleable Mm -hmm. and a bit of a chameleon to all the cultures. And I think also being from two different countries opens you up to a lot of different social norms and cultures and you're kind of more accepting and Mm -hmm. kind of easily influenced by other cultures, I would say, and you're easily kind of adaptable
1: I think so, because I was listening to a podcast, uh, it's an Indian behavioral science podcast, and uh, the guest there was so informed, so you know, well-researched. He's an actor, author. So he says something, and I don't want to make this podcast a so political, so I'll just get what I learned. So he says something beautifully, uh, because I've been a minority all my life. He says, sometimes the disadvantage you've always had creates an advantage, because you kind of have a different lens. You have a multiple... Mm-hmm you see you see both sides of the highway you kind of see the traffic going exactly. in traffic going out and if you were a majority and i've been a majority in some situations and i think and there's nothing wrong in being one but i think uh like you know it's, it must not be an easy moving to Czech republic as a 12 year old mm-hmm. american girl so how many languages do you know like i mean uh, i don't want to make it about me Czech. But...
0: Czech. i speak fluent Czech and english yeah i also yeah I really like that, that you see both sides, that you see both highways. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. I also think it's interesting and difficult that then choosing where to live post-tennis. This will be a bit of a challenge for me since I don't fully fit into Czech Republic maybe, but I don't fully fit into America. And it's kind of finding that balance and where do I fully fit in? Who am I? And I'm 26. I should know this by now, but... um, Hmm. I'm still working on it and that's okay.
1: <laughs> all right, so let's now do it parallel to tennis because this is still a tennis mm-hmm. podcast. So again, we as viewers, we all like judge people in tennis, even the strokes, the style, like for the longest time, the American style was ball bashing and power tennis, both men and women's side. But when you look at a Burdick or you look at a Kwitova or you look at a Mukhova, you you see, or even the Russian style, you see these glorious backhands. So there's also, like, this way of uh, typifying a brand. American tennis was power tennis, but you, with some of the Eastern European countries, the tennis was seen, even the power was seen as beautiful. You know, the strokes. So do you think going there kind of uh, change your game, and do you think you play more like an American player, baseliner, or do you think you look up to a Mohova or uh, some mm-hmm. of those smooth ball I've... strikers...
0: I think I think I fit in more with the Czech style of tennis just because we're known, we have a reputation on tour of having very powerful, flat 400 backhands, very solid, especially the backhands, very solid, powerful backhands. And that's definitely my style. And that's apparently that's known for Czech Republic. I think that's one of our greatest strengths. That's why we have so many girls in the top 200. And so... I think I lean more towards that way in terms of tennis style. In terms of my tennis identity, I would say I definitely lean more to Czech Republic because of that upbringing and at the academy and yeah, the style and who I was influenced by and kind of what my tennis world was. So me as an individual is you know more one foot in one foot out, but me as a tennis player is was more so formed and shaped and created in Czech Republic. And that's why I choose to play for the Czech flag.
1: Okay, so did this stand out? I mean, I don't want to get in trouble with my listeners. What I'm trying to say is like, let me first explain my reasoning. I think you got it, but like Andy Roddick, you know, one of the most successful players to come out of the U.S. was a power player, but his Mm -hmm. limitation on the backhand, uh, again, beauty lies in the eye of the beholder. A lot of people think he played effective tennis, but it wasn't like pretty tennis. But then Tomáš Berdík, uh, he was also like playing and there were other adjectives thrown at him, but his, his mechanics of the game looked so good because the technique was superb. And sometimes, and it, this could be old school bias, like, you know, the Europeans play a more game with flair and Americans play a more powerful game. So using that as an example, so if anybody thinks I'm kind of shortchanging my own country, but when you were playing this Czech brand of tennis, did people see that in, in Syracuse? Did you ever feel that, you know, you were playing slightly different than others? That Did this stand out? Did someone mention it? Is it worth exploring that?
0: I'm trying to think if at Syracuse I was ever typified or branded as a certain type of player. I think, especially in college, I was more hard hitter, quite effective, just hit through people because I think that was kind of, it was more efficiency and power over flair and like long winded rallies. Cause as I said, I was more focused on the school and tennis was the job that was able to get me the education. Um, so I think in college, it was more so like this, if that was American style or Czech style, maybe it was more the American style because we were, we were indoor hard. So that's kind of the more game style, hard effectiveness, hard brute power, So, maybe it did skew more to the American side. And now, as I've started to play pro, I'm trying to be more cautious, more mindful of my shots, adding more spin, and trying to play with a bit more intelligence. I do think that also corresponded with the level change that in college you don't play girls that are top 200 just yet. The. And then now I started to, and I definitely had to improve my level and play a lot higher and better tennis than I had to do in college.
1: Okay. Right, so the other thing I want you to do is to compare your formative years in Czech Republic with tennis, where you learned you know, your technique, your strokes, and you, you became the player you are, but then you were in Syracuse. So how is the information fed, say, comparing the Czech system to a coaching system in the United States? So did you see uh, through the lens of a player were like two, I don't want to say federations, because Syracuse doesn't represent USTA, but it's an American college of repute. So did you see how uh, the coaching staff or the people made in uh, in charge of decision-making, did you see a slight difference in how they approached their tennis? Was it a different mindset? Czech mindset versus the US mindset?
0: I I think it was definitely different, but also I think it was different because I had a Moroccan head coach. And it was a university style and it was a lot different from the academy style that I was used to. Um, But I do think that was more so because it was university versus professional. I haven't spent enough time yet in America at an academy to actually be able to compare the two. because I've trained in the UK, Czech Republic, Germany, Italy, and Thailand. (laughs) And I haven't, and I've trained individually in Czech Republic, but I do think, if I'm speaking broadly, I do think America has a more positive, upbeat, happy-go-lucky attitude towards training. They're very intense. They work very hard, but they're more positive and upbeat and optimistic about things, I would say, and a bit more lighthearted. And Czech people, our strength is that we're very, very hardworking as well and kind of put our head down and grind it out. And I think that has gotten us and so many good players mm. but also that's why america has a lot of good players so i think those are kind of the two differences that i see and both have amazing strengths and and weaknesses of course
1: yeah the reason i asked is because both have amazing talent pool and amazing programs you see the world class talent that comes out of us and czech republic right it's no secret mm. uh, but again i'm basing because i learned my tennis listening a lot of years to the espn crew and sometimes mm. you know it's just like history you know which country you're going to school to, they'll t- tell you a different history. So the Tennis Channel or, and ESPN also always had an American lens. So going back mm-hmm. in the late 90s and early 2000s, the years of the Safins and the you know, Kornikovas and Kafelnikovs. So again, I'm showing a Russian example. Uh, American media always said American players fight better. They are mentally right. tough. While some of the European players may have all the talent, uh, the fight's missing. Again, it's, it's a very general, generalizing view. And I'm sure Mm. you have plenty of examples to prove this wrong. I'm not saying this is the notion we go by, but Mm. uh, any food for thought? Do you see how two cultures approach tennis? Is there like ugly tennis like Brad Gilbert's style, win at every cost, is more prevalent at one or the two?
0: I, especially nowadays, I actually disagree with what they were saying, that Americans have more fight. I think, especially because... The tennis players that come out of America, usually they're a bit more affluent. I'm not trying to generalize. Of course, we have low-income people in America, too, and low-income tennis players from lesser backgrounds. But it's generally the more affluent people. I think the tennis players that come out of Europe, especially Eastern Europe and you know other countries, they pff, have to work so hard to get where they get to and no one's really giving them that many handouts. For example, I only just now got one sponsor and everything that I've won, I've won because of me just fighting so, so much. And maybe sometimes in the matches wanting it more than the opponent. I remember I played a I'm not gonna say nationalised names, but I played a girl who gets a lot of funding from her country. And she was there with two coaches who the country pays for and I saw it in that final in the third set I wanted this more than she did because I knew I needed the money badly I needed the points because I needed to make Australian Open and to make the money and I just you know for me this entire year and a half that I've been playing it's just kind of survival and I need to win this match to pay for the next tournament and if I don't I might not get in a next tournament. And I think this is the mindset that a lot of people from European, Eastern European countries have. And maybe less us Americans have that. I might be completely wrong, but that's kind of just what I've noticed on tour. And it's a blessing and a curse, as we always say.
1: Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's it's tricky too. Like, and then this conversation mm-hmm. is so rich; it could be a podcast by itself. Because uh, look at Italy, like right? the men's tennis boom right now, because they have so many challenger events. Yeah, in some countries, like even Australia or some countries in Latin America, I mean, you have to leave your home and to be with a, you know with a hotel and a backpack, pretty much to to even have a chance at these tournaments. And you know more than anyone, if the rankings not allowing you, the, you you kind of become limited. So, yeah. no, I think that's. And again, I don't endorse that view. I just wanted to get a you know view with players because the, and American channels don't do that now, but there was a time when they would say Burdick went away from a fight. He's a good front runner or uh, Safin is not serious. So I think that's sometimes we are underscoring people. We don't know their journey, how they got there. Now, like you are saying, you are battling not only a player, you're battling a player with a team. So you don't know how that person got to the Ash night match. We know all about a Wozniaki or uh, you know or, uh, or or any big name. And I threw Wozniaki in there because she's your idol. So let's talk about that. You know, like uh, uh, what got you into yeah. Kara Wozniaki and who are who are other influences in your life on the tennis court?
0: I my favorite role was always Maria Sharapova especially throughout college and before when I was more of a just just hard hitter Um, I always and I always thought she had a certain class and decorum on court which I loved I also like to look nice I want to fight so hard on court but I want to look nice play really well and yeah she always embodied that so I always kind of looked up to her and then Caroline Wozniacki also was a big big fighter I think It wasn't her game style that I emulated, but it was also kind of her attitude and mindset. And she came to our academy when I was about 12, I think. I have a picture of me and her on my wall at home. And if I see her at the Australian Open, I might go up to her and say, hey, I took a picture with you when I was 12. Can I get another one, please?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we need to update your Wikipedia page because was not mentioned there as your influence. My bad, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a yellow card for me. Yeah, uh, is <laughs> mentioned there, but I'm glad you backed me up there so that you have a picture with her. I'm so, just
0: proud that I have a Wikipedia page. That only happened about two months ago. That was a big deal for me. I was very excited.
1: No, it, it'll grow, believe me. You know, the more you win, I think the page will expand. So mm-hmm. uh, the other comparison, I know we're going back and forth, is compare the college tennis in, you know, Durham and Syracuse. How are those two systems? How vast mm-hmm. is the competition, and where you think which made you, if it's the right question, ready for the tour? Which system gave you the right. ample fire and opportunity to be?
0: So there are two very very different systems. College in America is very performance based for both the players and the coaches. They the colleges because they they there a business as well, and they make money. And so, you know, if you win, you make money for the university, and it's very much work. And you're there to win for the university, to make money for the university, to keep the coach from getting fired. And, <laughs> and it's very intense, and it can be very intense. I can't imagine the stress that college coaches go through of having a bunch of 18 year olds, usually European that don't speak any English, to have a bunch of 18 year olds, like your job depend on them. These idiots that have no idea what's going on about the world, they just came as freshmen overseas. (laughs) So it's very stressful. And I think this is why a lot of people burn out in college and they get kind of disillusioned because the coaches can drive them very, very hard. And it's, it's an intense season. On the other hand, the UK, it's a club-based tennis program. So it's more so just a club that's provided to all the university students and only the top four spots, only the first team, get scholarships. So there's about seven teams and only the top one gets scholarship. So it's the program would be there no matter what, even if we win or lose, The coach has a nice warm spot that he can have for the next decade if he wants. And there's no pressure. It's much more relaxed. It's easygoing. The practices are there if you want to go to them. No one's going to kick you off the team if you don't go to practice. And that was the big reason why I fell back in love with tennis, because I was a bit burned out after college in America. And the years at Durham really gave me the opportunity to choose to go to practice to fall in love with tennis, to enjoy it. And whenever I was at those practices, I was there with other people that also chose to be there. No one was forcing them either. So the entire practice had this upbeat, positive, motivated atmosphere that sometimes, you know, 6am practice, it's in Syracuse, New York, when it's about minus 15 Celsius outside, no one wants to be there. The coaches don't even want to be there. (laughs) And in England, if if you go, you are there because you genuinely want to. And it was awesome. And I loved it. And I started really enjoying all the aspects of tennis. And that made me want to go pro. So I wouldn't have gone pro without that leniency that I got at Durham University and the kind of, yeah. And the, huh. the love that I, I found there.
1: Yeah, what little I read, I wouldn't have thought this. So that's quite a uh, informative answer, but you did have success in Syracuse. You won close to what, 179 matches, which is like, I think yeah. the page says the second most in the history of the program. So.
0: Yeah, I was fourth in the nation on uh, my junior year in singles and doubles. So I was very good. I was there with um, Danielle Collins, Emma Navarro. Which they were, I think, graduated a couple year or two before me. But yeah, it was definitely the top five to 10 girls were really good and they all went pro as well so I graduated and I was looking at these girls who also went pro and within about a year or two they were like top 200 and I was thinking should I have also tried maybe maybe Mm. I should have so eventually I did
1: (laughs) right so the other thing is uh, when you're not turning pro you're playing in college so at least in U.S. looks like the college surface of choice is hard courts right Mm -hmm. So, what's that like in Durham in the UK? I mean, are you exposed to other courts, other surfaces, or is it still pretty much uh, so indoor hard and outdoor hard?
0: Yeah, mostly yes. But we at Durham had carpet, so that was strange. And then sometimes we had these really slick, kind of multi purpose courts. And then we had indoor hard and in some courts, and then outdoor hard at others. It was, like I said, in the UK, it's very much more low key than it is in the college environment and yeah, a lot less high stakes. Hmm. So that also corresponds with with the bit of a mess of courts. And yeah, mine our courts were indoor carpet, which was interesting.
1: (laughs) All right. So let's come back to your uh, breakout breakthrough year you had, which is still not over. So we talked about this, your ranking jumped. So, so how did you pick your schedule? Were you still predominantly a hard court player or have you experimented much with clay? Because that's going that's bound to happen. The higher you go, I think you will be exposed to more. So yeah. what, is, what I, course has that close been?
0: I wanted to play the majority of the year on hard just to, because it's what I'm best at. Um, but I did want to play in, I think it was late summer, early fall. I was meant to do a six-week clay court season. Unfortunately, I broke my pinky toe the night before the first tournament. <laughs> so I tried, played the match, and then just couldn't play for the next um, six weeks, actually. So, yeah, incidentally, I accidentally skipped that clay court season that I had planned. Um, oh, well, darn it.
1: <laughs> and well, You're a an stranger to clay, right? In Czech Republic, you must have played on clay. so
0: Yeah, we... Play. I trained on clay from yeah all of my teenage years, but I do think those seven years at college overrid all of those. Also because in the summer I didn't really play that much since I had a bunch of internships. So I didn't, you know, even when I was in college in the summers, I didn't actually play that much on clay. So it's been about seven years of not much clay court time, which I can play on clay. It'll be fine. It's not my favorite, and that's okay. There's a lot of players that are clay court specialists, but play amazing on hard court too. Um, it's just kind of learning and we'll cross that bridge when I get to it. It was meant to happen in July, but I didn't know how to walk downstairs. So I broke my toe.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sure it'll be fine because uh, it's like riding a bike Probably It'll come back to you uh, because the movement so. in clay is more pronounced and Again, that's, I'm sure you lived in the U.S. and back and forth, so that's been the talk of the last decade. I've talked to many USTA coaches, not many, I've talked to Jose Hagaras, then I talked to Tim Mayotte, who also was, I think, part of the program. So he believes not training on clay gave the European players, uh, not training on clay gives an American player disadvantage. Now, you know, they have put many uh, clay coaches in, I think, the new USTA center in Orlando. So uh, do you think, again, uh, uh, playing on clay, Gives you a better education because I, I compare it to like you know learning to drive on a stick. Then you can drive automatic because if you learn to drive on automatic, you can't go to stick. I think clay definitely for me, how the yeah, players have been uh, is a clear I think advantage. So.
0: I don't, I don't think it's as dramatic as because if you learn automatic, you cannot drive stick ever. Yeah, yeah that's so I don't an think extreme thing. <laughs> as dramatic, <laughs> but I, I see where you're going with that metaphor. I understand. I think because maybe clay courts, tennis, especially from a young age, develops a sort of craftsmanship, um, flair, like we talked about before. Yeah, kind of learning the various aspects of the game. And maybe hard court brings a person to have a one-dimensional game. I could see how that could happen. But I think the Americans are doing a great job of getting... They're a way around that because they seem to do, be doing amazing. So it hasn't handicapped them too much, clearly.
1: Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. again, your second year, right? So I don't want to keep you here. I know it's uh, already going to be 9 nine p.m. where you are. So uh, what really worked? Like, Is there a particular stroke that came out to your rescue when you won 53 matches? That, or Is this just your strengths that uh, that help you get all these wins? January oh, Gen- first to now. How has Gabriella yeah. improved? In I, that aspect.
0: It was. It was more so just a hunger to see how high I can go because this I started out playing pro as more of an experiment than a goal um, and just wanting to see who I can beat and how good i actually am and i can't, went into every single match especially the matches where i played higher ranked players every single time i was like okay let's see let's test it let's test my skills against this player and this player and um it's been wonderful and i'm so proud of myself for keeping that mindset for so long because it's been really exciting and i think that was my main strength just going into that match and seeing, okay Let's do everything I can to win and if and just see, see where our level's at. See if you're good enough. And that's kind of – I really want to keep that going. It's hard now. It gets harder and harder to keep that optimistic, motivated, almost childlike excitement. Um, and it gets harder and harder as the pressure builds and you get to higher tournaments and your ranking gets higher because there's only 160 girls now higher ranked. So I will play lower ranked players but they're still really, really good. So it's a different mindset and I have to kind of adjust to that. So hopefully it will be okay.
1: At this level, you probably know a lot of your opponents. It has to, it's a closed circuit, right? So if there comes a point you haven't played someone and you are your own coach, you haven't had much research, then what do you do in that kind of a match? Do you stick to your strengths? Plan A, plan B? What's what's your talk to yourself? I do a
0: lot of research. I do a lot of research into the opponent on YouTube, um, I talk to my strategist. I make a plan of what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, what are my strengths compared to theirs. It's very, very important to make that plan. And it's, I think most girls at this level do that. I don't think you can go into a match blind.
1: Yeah, I meant it, if you didn't have, yeah. it, there's a rare scenario where you didn't know much about someone, which is hard these days. You probably have footage yeah, of thank any, everyone. Gosh.
0: Yeah. If I don't know them, if there's nothing, I. Yeah, I just, I go into the match, which this is something I've learned, going into the match and then learning what they do and kind of focusing more on myself, of course, still, but focusing also on what they're doing and really kind of seeing that instead of in the past, in college, I would have just stuck to plan A, if it's working, great, if it's not, oh, well, but now it's more so, okay, Let's take a step back. Let's see what they're doing. Acknowledge their strengths, weaknesses. It's chess, really. You have to analyze their game style, but you have to do it so fast because they're doing it just as quickly as you are. So it's learning and really analyzing during the points. And I think that's what a lot of players between the points are doing, really trying to figure it out. Because you can have a plan against one player, and they can come out the next day playing completely different tennis because they also made a new plan against you. Mm. So I can watch her matches on YouTube against a different player, but that was her strategy. It could have been completely completely different. So it's just adjusting during the match, really, and it takes a lot of brain power, and it's it's difficult. And the higher and higher I go, the more energy and mental awareness and mental power that I need to use, which is great because – I think I learned that in college in the academic side of it. And I'm happy that I can apply the mental strengths in my tennis as well.
1: We see a lot of players, I think, rush the net a little more because the game had become Mm -hmm. quite monotonous. Now, I think anybody who has a bit of more completeness or ability to go to the net on their own terms, she will have a better chance. So is a net rushing part of your overall package? Is that plan B, plan C? Uh, Where does net rushing fit in?
0: I love coming to the net. I don't think it's a good idea to rush on without a plan. I think if you prepare and build the point correctly, then coming up on the net can be super advantageous. Two weeks ago, and against Alize Cornet, she's more of a counterpuncher, a grinder from the back, and I use that to my advantage. Unfortunately, I lost, but it was very, very close. And I came on the net many, many times. And the best points that I won were one on the net because I needed to work so hard to get through her because she runs so much, gets everything back. And the only way I was going to win the point was if I came on the net.
1: That's interesting. All right, so what is the next year? I, I want to reveal your secrets here, but what's what's the goal? I mean, you're already, three hundred, you know, 163, that's the rank, right? So, what are the mm-hmm. next year goals in terms of fitness and rankings? Do you work uh, with short term goals, or do you have a larger picture in mind where you want to be next year I at mean, this point?
0: My my goal for my main goal was to make a Grand Slam, so and I've achieved that. So, I think I would like I don't like giving myself high, high, high goals that just seem so far out of reach right now. For me, I would really like to play all four Grand Slams next year. I think that would be a wonderful goal for me to have. And obviously I would love to be top 100. That's the big, big goal, but I'm not putting that as the be all and end all. I will, if I play all four Grand Slams next year, I will be a happy camper.
1: I wish you the best. So what happens if I put hypothetically, you are like a top 90, top 80 player, and then USDA comes knocking. Are you open to play for the US? I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there's no shortage of players on both sides. Do yeah. uh, uh, you entertain those thoughts? I mean, I know it's far-fetched. You live in the moment.
0: <laughs> I I have. I've been very embraced by the Czech tennis community. But I, I'd i have to see. I'd have to see how good the offer is. I am open to discussing my my opportunities with anyone. What I will decide would have to go, would have to be based on the opportunity, how good it is. And it would take a lot for me to have to leave the Czech tennis community.
1: Okay. All right. So two more minutes and let's talk a bit mm-hmm. of non-tennis. So you travel a lot. I mean, just for listeners here, what, what do you like to do? I know you, you, you I read, read. You have your own channel. Yes,
0: I read like crazy. I also work for Dropshot Series, follow Dropshot Series on social media, on Instagram, and I do part-time media content for them. And I'm starting my own blog in 2024 and I'm working on a website I, yeah, I, but it's, it's things that I need to do to keep my mind occupied and feel like I'm progressing forward with my hobbies and not just win my tennis.
1: And how's the travel been? Is there a city that stands out where you uh, feel like it's a good place to vacation if you lose early or is it a place you want to revisit?
0: I love Bangkok. I really do. I, I feel very comfortable here. I have a nice nice people around me and I it's very very nice and there's a great country club here that I enjoy so I like it here but I'm open to exploring I'm excited to go to the U.S. next year hopefully I'll spend some time there hopefully I'll play U.S. Open so I'd like to spend time there as well and um, yeah you will see where the tennis tour takes me it's so difficult to have it be so unprecedented that after the Australian Open I have no idea what my schedule is like zero I could go to Mexico, India, Austria, Portugal, Vietnam.
1: think so, yeah, mean, That's the beauty just, of tennis. Yeah, it's so international. It is, it is.
0: Yeah.
1: No, Bangkok is, again, I, I used to go, in my college, I made some friends from, the two brothers who were from Bangkok, and they introduced me to some of the best Thai restaurants in Boston. That time the food was exploding here, but now it's fully arrived. Yeah, but I, I don't think you, you do, you, I mean, tennis players don't eat like we do. We go and, you know, chow and noodles. I'm sure you guys have to watch what you eat. It's, it's a very different world. Yeah,
0: we do. But the Thai food is actually quite good for it. Um, I watch my diet quite closely, um, but not to an extreme where I would just be eating, you know, protein and rice and broccoli. Definitely not.
1: <laughs> there you go. Hi, right, this was a great interview. I enjoyed knowing you much better. I definitely will share your interview to my inner tennis circle, the tennis geeks that I know. We'll all be watching you Hopefully qualify for the main draw in Melbourne, and and if we do this podcast again, I hope I'm talking to someone who's in the top fifty, top sixty, you know, because you. I hope so too. Yeah. Next
0: <laughs> next December, let's twenty third of December twenty twenty four. Let's make it
1: happen. Okay, let's do this. All the best, and uh, and yeah, uh, yeah. This was this was fun. I hope I did justice, and you know, brought. Uh, you have immense knowledge, and you have a flair for topics. So this was fun. Thanks for doing this. <laughs> Thank
0: you very much. Thanks for having me. <laughs>